0: Well, it's good to see you all back this evening, this week, for our Sunday night series. We're going through a biblical leadership series. And just last week, we began the second part of this study. It's been going on for some time, but now we're getting into the the second half of it, so to speak, where we're going to focus on the how-to or the practical side of biblical leadership in a biblical leadership series. We've sufficiently covered, I think, the the foundation of leadership, which revolves around the character of the leader— And so now, starting last week, we're getting into the task of the leader. And so here we are studying the practice of biblical leadership. From the preparation of biblical leadership, that was several months' worth, and now into the practice of biblical leadership a couple more months ago. And more specifically, starting last time, we're getting into the first of these practical topics, these how-tos in biblical leadership. We started with how to study the Bible. Began that last week. We'll be concluding that tonight. How to study the Bible. As we've been learning, our, our mission in leadership, for leaders in the church, the mission is to present every person complete in Christ, to help others grow into the image of Christ. And for that mission, we have a primary tool the Word of God, Scripture, the means of that spiritual growth. And so it's imperative, therefore, that you accurately wield the Word of God, like we were learning this morning. You need to know scripture truthfully if you're going to hope to minister it to others and encourage others. And so for this, top of the list is going to be how to study the Bible. You really have no hope of ministering God's word to help others grow and become like Christ. If you don't know what it says, if you don't know what it means, and if you can't find out what it says and means on your own through Bible study, you've got to feed yourself first before you can feed others. So, this is clearly a a first stop for the the how-to of leadership. If you're going to lead in the church and we lead by the word, you've got to know how to study the word. And as I said last time as we got into it, this can be quite a large study in itself. It could merit its own Sunday night series, and we've actually done that many uh, years ago. We did a whole Sunday night on how to study the Bible. But for now, I'm just trying to give you a, a bit of an overview to the Bible study process. Granted, Many of you may not do such an in-depth Bible study like we're talking about here. The process I've been giving you is meant for studying the Bible at a, at a deep level. But still, I want you to be exposed to the full process at a, a solid level. Whether you'll go that far or not, I want you to know about it. Those of you here who might turn into someday full-fledged Bible teachers, small group leaders, you know, I trust You're going to take this teaching and run with it in time. But even if you don't, I trust you will still glean a good amount about how to study the Bible better for all it's worth. How can you, even in your own, even if it's casual, how you can study the Bible better on your own. Last time we made it through the first six steps in this Bible study process, how to study the Bible. We made it through steps one through six. Those were, just in lightning speed recap, to pray Read, familiarize, organize, question, and observe. You'll have to get the the lesson from last week if you weren't here because we can't say much more than just repeating them. These steps deal with just getting into the text on your own and you're you're reading it, you're studying it, you're observing it, you're asking questions. And so far in this process, you're not really relying on too many outside resources. You're just sitting down, opening your Bible, you've picked a, a text, right? You have a passage you're studying. And you're just reading it a bunch. You're reading it over and over again. You're reading the context. You're starting to make some observations, taking some notes. You're also asking questions for future study. Things you you don't know. Or you you feel like you want to know more. And that's kind of as far as we've gotten. Where you're just using your own two eyes to read and study the text. But now though, as we continue picking up where we left off. As you continue in this Bible study process you're trying to find some answers to all these questions you've come up with, right? The last step we finished with, number six, was to question. You've got a passage and just you're asking questions of it. What does this mean? What does that mean? How is this related to that verse? Just all the questions you can think of. And you might look at that list of questions and realize I, I can't answer many of these questions on my own. They're easy to ask. just a little bit harder to answer, and. Now, though, we're going to look at some steps to to bridge the gaps of understanding, to answer the questions of the text, and to get at the intended meaning. Remember, that's our goal in the Bible study process. At least that's the first goal. Just to find out what did the original author mean to his original audience in this passage? What's the intended meaning? Which is going to be the same as, as God's meaning working through these authors. So that's our goal. And so we're going to get to that uh, today. Now, speaking of these gaps, that's what makes Bible study challenging. Because when you you sit down, you open the Bible, you're going to study it. Even without really thinking about it, you've got several huge gaps to cross, to bridge, before you can understand this book. Because the Bible was written 2,000 plus years ago in different languages, halfway across the world from authors who had way different backgrounds and different cultures that was just nothing like 21st century America. So you're reading an old, old writing and book. And granted, we we know and believe it's inspired and so profitable for today, but still, it still comes to us in an ancient setting. And that alone makes it way more difficult to understand than just picking up a newspaper from 21st century America. That's That's your time. That's your culture. This is not... And so overcoming these gaps of understanding is a huge part of just the battle or the challenge of trying to study the Bible. Just, a lot of it is just transporting yourself back to that ancient time and place and, and reading the Bible from that perspective. Anyway, this leads to step number seven. We're picking up where we left off. We made it through one through six. So this is step number seven and it is bridge. Step seven we would call bridge. It's what you're doing. You're bridging gaps. Gaps of understanding. So far, you've read your text a bunch of times. You've made a list of observations, even a list of questions. But You're going to look at those questions, and a lot of them you just can't answer. Why not? Well, most of it is probably because you're reading just an ancient writing from a different culture that is just foreign to you. So let's make it no longer foreign. Let's learn about that time, the place, the people, the culture, the language. And that's going to bridge this gap. So we need a bridge. Our objective here is, is through further study to bridge the main gaps of understanding the Bible as an ancient document and a foreign writing. Like I said, you've got to transport yourself from the now to the then to try and discover the original author's intent, right? If that's our goal, to find out what the original author meant to his original audience. Because what it means today is never going to be detached from what it originally meant We've got to go back to then. Now, here's a little bit of good news in that the most difficult gap has largely been bridged for you, and that is the language gap. The Bible was not written in English. it's written in Hebrew, Greek, a little bit of Aramaic. And chances are, realistically, you're not going to be able to bridge that gap on your own. And so if you had no translation, you just had the Greek New Testament, you'd have a pretty hard time understanding the Bible and studying the Bible because you don't know Greek. You have to learn Greek. But we're thankful that faithful translators have bridged this gap for most in the church today. And you can safely use a solid English translation which captures the original text in its most ancient manuscripts. So that's that's good news. You don't have to go to seminary and learn Greek and Hebrew just to study the Bible. Uh, those, are, those are good things. But we can, for at least for our purposes for now, consider that gap bridged by your translation. But there's a couple of other gaps you still want to work on yourself. And so let me just expose you to two of the main gaps you're, you're going to want to bridge in Bible study. There's actually several, but we're, I'm trying to simplify, even though I know this is a lot. I know I'm just dumping a lot on you, but that's, that's what you get. Anyway, the first is the historical gap. The historical gap. God simply chose to use human authors to pen scripture. Human authors writing from unique time, places, circumstances, cultures, backgrounds, and styles to form his word. He, by the supervision of the Holy Spirit, ensured that the product would be free from error and would be God-breathed. But he did so by means of individual human authors with their own styles and backgrounds and all that stuff. And so by design, therefore, the Bible reflects the the culture of its day. And to properly understand the Bible, you need to clear your mind of 21st century Western thinking and culture. And you got to transport yourself back to the ancient Near East is what we call it, the ancient Near East. And to do this, you're going to have to study a bit of the history, culture, geography, and background of the biblical writers. The more you know that, the more familiar the Bible will be to you, right? The history, culture, geography, and background of the biblical writers. And all of that, for the sake of simplicity, we're including in this historical gap. And so we're talking ancient Jewish culture and Greek and Roman, a little bit of Egyptian, a little bit of Babylonian, not Japanese. Right? So it, it will do you no know good to learn the Bible better by studying the geography of Japan. Right. So you get what I'm saying. You've got the biblical cultures represented primarily Jewish, but uh, there's others represented, and so just getting immersed in those cultures and and way of life, it's gonna give you a greater understanding of the Bible, which reflects those cultures and way of life. Now thinking of the cultures of biblical authors. Just ask yourself, in your study, you know, how would you describe their relationships, their religions, their politics, their agriculture, their economics, their warfare, their language, their customs? These are all elements of historical background that, just without thinking, make their way into the, an author's writing. And if you couldn't help it. If you had to write a little book or write a letter, you couldn't help inserting just references or just elements of 21st century American culture. It's it's going to come out. And so it goes with the scripture readings. And we want to draw out the meaning. We've got to know a lot of this background. Ultimately, we're after the meaning of words, phrases, and practices in the biblical text. But these are shaped by the original setting of the author. Words and customs can change over time. And so if you don't if you don't get that, there's going to be a lot of miscommunication. So again, I think you get the point. You need to take the original setting of the author into consideration if you're going to rightly divide the word. Now to help a little bit, maybe a few examples will help you understand uh, what we're talking about here. And there's, there's a ton. This is, this is a big one. This is a big area where a lot of your study might be right here, just getting acquainted with the day and age of the Bible. But here's some historical gap examples these come from Roy Zuck's book, Basic Bible Interpretation. You have a political background. For example, why did Boaz go to the city gate to talk to the elders about Naomi's land in Ruth 4 verse 1? And the answer is because in that culture, the city gate, we think of a city gate like that's just a place of protection, But in the ancient Near East, most cities, the city gate was where a lot of business was held, where judgments would be held. The elders of the city would congregate by the gate for their judgments, for their ruling. So it was a place of business, commerce, and judgment. So it makes perfect sense. That's where uh, Boaz went. How about agricultural? This, you know, the Bible reflects an agrarian society. So this one, this one. I won't call it controversial, but it's in the Bible. Why did Amos call the women of Bethel cows of Bashan in Amos 4.1? He called the women there cows, cows of Bashan. And the cows of Bashan, that's a fertile area northeast of the Sea of Galilee, they were known for being very fat cows. And so like these fat cows, he was saying the women of Bethel, they were wealthy and they were lazy and they were doing nothing but sitting around eating and drinking. It was a rebuke on the lazy women of Bethel. Pretty, it's in there, it's in the Bible. He called them Cows of Bashan. But it's an example of some background to help you know what his rebuke was. The prophet's rebuke to lazy, prosperous women. Domestic, domestic example. You know, you you read the Last Supper account, you find out there's one point where John, he just starts leaning on Jesus while they're having a meal. He's like leaning back on him. And you might think, Isn't that kind of weird or rude? Like, why would you lean on someone during a meal? But you find that they were, in that culture, they most likely would have been seated on couches rather than chairs. There is no back support. And it was actually quite normal in that culture to, you know, lean on someone or rest on someone even during a meal. It was not considered rude. So he was doing what was, from that day, normal. Geographical examples. You know, why did Jesus speak of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Jericho is, is up from Jerusalem on a map, but he says he went down to Jericho because he's talking not on a map, but in elevation. The elevation gain from Jericho to Jerusalem is 2,000 feet. So if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you are going down, even though it's up on a map. And then lastly, maybe a social example You know, why did Joseph shave before he went to see Pharaoh in Genesis 41? Because typically Hebrews wore beards and they did not shave. And so why did Joseph shave? Well, the Egyptian custom was to not wear beards. And so Joseph, you know, being in that culture now was simply following the the culture of his land. So these are, look, I know some of these might be small or trivial examples, but if you're studying a passage and you want to really fully explore it and get to know it, these are going to come into play. This, the, the culture, the geography, the, the history of the, the Bible, biblical writers, they're going to come up. Now, the next question, I think at this point you get it. This is a gap that must be bridged. You get what we're talking about. How do you do it then? How do you go about bridging this gap and finding these types of answers and information? The process is not all that difficult. Just take some time and some digging. You start, you have a passage. Start by looking for culturally conditioned words or phrases in your text. For example, references to time, location, history, culture, custom. Anything that, that seems, we would say, culturally conditioned, just make a note of it for future research, right? You've got your page of observations, your page of questions. You see those, those key words, something that might be a part of the historical gap, write it down. Write it, write it on your page of questions. And a, what, what does this reference mean to you know, foot washing? We don't do that today. We don't wash one another's feet. Why would, why would they wash each other's feet? Why, what does it mean that Jesus set aside his, his, his you know, outer covering? Just historical background. Write it down your list of questions. And you'll get to it with uh, future research. A lot of it's just going to come from your knowledge of the original culture and the setting of the text. And so the more you you know and have the knowledge of ancient cultures, the better. Where does that knowledge come from? And so here there's two answers. Where do you get this type of knowledge that you need? And two answers. One is biblical sources. So the Bible itself tells us a lot about its own culture. And the other answer is extra biblical resources. And that just means resources outside the Bible. We'll talk about both. So first, you're going to start with biblical resources. You're studying the Bible itself. And just by studying your text and the context or even just the whole Bible, you can piece together a lot of the meaning of these culturally conditioned words or phrases or customs. And just the greater your knowledge of scripture as a whole, the easier this will be for you. But try, you know, cross-referencing words or phrases to understand its meaning in different contexts. And another example is going to help you. Like Titus 1.10. Paul, in that passage, he identifies opponents. He says, they're those of the circumcision. Now, I know a lot of you might be familiar with who those people are because we've studied it. But If you're new to the Bible and you read this, you're like, who is that? Who are these people? And he merely identifies them as those of the circumcision. He says they're rebellious men who must be silenced because they're upsetting people, teaching things they should not. So it sounds pretty serious, but like who are they and what are they teaching to merit such a strong warning? And in Titus, Paul does not say, He does not further identify these people or say exactly what they're teaching. So, if you're studying that passage, you're like, that's kind of a big deal. Like, who are these people and what were they teaching? But just by studying this reference, this reference to circumcision in the Bible, you can answer that yourself. Now, a lot of it is going to be not relevant. It's going to refer to the literal Old Testament practice that the Jews did. But you get to the New Testament, specifically the writings of Paul, You find he talks about these people a lot, this, uh, the party of the circumcision or the group known as the circumcision. And by Bible study, by doing your own research and referencing, or you could look it up in a Bible dictionary, you find that he's talking about Jewish Christians who were still legalists and they taught that for Gentiles to be saved, they had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. Or in other words, they basically had to become Jews. And that was a false teaching. That's uh, against the gospel. But that's just an, an example, though, of I mean, that's, that's a, a, a significant historical gap to understanding Titus 1.10. And just by studying the Bible itself, you could answer that. Yeah, it might take some time, some digging, but that's something you would do if you're going to do a, an in-depth Bible study. Now, in addition, you can also look up some extra biblical resources. Again, just meaning sources outside of Scripture in addition to the bible itself these other sources they give us historical information that can be useful and they come in many forms like ancient historians or archaeological discoveries or just other writings and reliable historical information can be taken into consideration but here just always with a grain of salt because these sources, like you know, a guy named Josephus writing around the time of Christ, tells us a lot about the history of the day. And you can learn a thing or two about the history of you know, the Jews in the day of Christ. But always with a grain of salt, because these sources are not inspired like Scripture. They're not authoritative like Scripture. But they can shed light and add color to the historical background of the Bible Knowledge from these sources is not necessary to studying the Bible. You can study the Bible on its own. It's self-sufficient. But they can, like I said, add some shades of color and understanding to the word and help take our understanding a bit deeper and be helpful. Now, of course, it would take a lifetime if you're going to try and you know, compile an extensive knowledge, historical knowledge of the biblical world by yourself. And so in reality here at this step, we're going to turn to some resources that have been compiled for us to to give us this information. So if you're on your own, you want to study circumcision in Titus 1.10, realistically, we have a lot of great resources. You're going to use them. We're talking about Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, manners and customs books, and, and so on. And you're going to look up circumcision. You'll see a little excerpt there and it's going it's to explain that for you and it's going to give you the historical information you need. And, and that's good. That's what these resources are there for. And they're really helpful. It's a, it's a good age to live in because there's plenty of resources. And so go ahead and use them. An example here where extra biblical resources are helpful. speaking of Titus, written to Titus on the island of Crete. And so there's a geography issue. We're talking about Crete. But if you didn't know anything about it, it's not essential to understanding Titus to know the geography of Crete, but it would kind of help give a little shade of meaning because he told him to appoint elders in every city. Like, how many cities are we talking about? Five? 500? How big is this island? How many cities are on it? And the Bible doesn't say. Nowhere in the Bible does it really you know, lay out the geography of Crete and the day of Christ. But looking at some extra biblical resources that, granted, they're not inspired, but they are reliable. As far as we know, you can get an understanding of the size of Crete and how long it would have taken Titus. And that's not essential to knowing the meaning of that text. But it can help give, give some great background, like going from black and white to color. It can just give you some, some extra there. It's good. So anyway, this historical gap, it's a big one to cross. But through study and some good resources, you're going to find a lot of your questions being answered here. So in this Bible study process, you've got a passage. You want to get to the bottom of this passage. What does this mean? What does this passage mean? And so you're, you're reading, you're, you're making your own observations. You're making a list of your own questions. And now in this, in this step, you're, you're going to answer a lot of those questions just here by bridging the historical gap. You'll find a lot of those will fall into place when you just transport yourself to the ancient world with study and with some resources. So, that's the first of the two main gaps you need to bridge to understand your passage, the historical gap. The second other main gap that you need to bridge best you can is the grammatical gap. It's fun, right? The grammatical gap. Now, thankfully, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to study the Bible. That gap has been bridged. But That being said, even when it comes to understand something written in English, like like a book, a novel, you still have a grammatical gap that needs to be crossed. Most of the time, you probably take this for granted because it might come naturally to you as an English speaker, especially if you're a native English speaker, but the gap is still there. Now, when we did this study originally in the How to Study the Bible class we did a while ago this here was its own 60-minute lesson, right? Thrilling, I know. Just, I, I, I took you back to English class, and I gave you a full-length, you know, English grammar refresher for, you know, studying the Bible. And we're not going to do that here, and we don't have time, and I'm sure you don't want to do that here. You don't want to go back to English class, but, you know, I'll at least mention some things that would be of help to you if you're studying a passage, and you're serious. You want to kind of get serious, get in there, and really study a passage that, you know, the grammar does matter. And so I'll give you a few things to consider to, to bridge this grammatical gap on your own. A few levels of understanding you want. First, the level of words. Just individual words. Understanding words. You're going to study a passage of scripture and you're going to encounter words you don't know. Unfamiliar words. Either you don't know what they mean. Or maybe you know what they mean, but you're not sure how that word's being used in your passage. And so as a result, you would do a word study. You've heard that before, like a word study. And so the first step in a word study is to consult a dictionary. Now we're not talking an English dictionary here. These are specific resources that the fancy word is a lexicon, like in a Greek lexicon or a Hebrew lexicon. And look, you can find them free online. It's what we, we, we referenced those in the old how to study the Bible class. But these are, you know, kind of Bible Uh, dictionaries are technically, like I said, lexicons, but they just help you. They're they're dictionaries. They're Greek and Hebrew dictionaries in English, and they just tell you what words can mean. But keep in mind, you look up a dictionary in English, I don't know the last time you did that was, but if you can remember, it tells you not just the meaning of the word, it gives you all the various meanings of the word you're looking up. So if you look up you know, the word orange, you'll find you know, several different listings in there. It can be a color, it can be a fruit. And so it's not telling you what your word means in that book you just read. It's just telling you, here's what that word can mean. And so that's just step one. Your first step is to look up the dictionary for the word in question. And you're going to find what's called the range of meaning. These are the, the possibilities uh, for this word. But it's not telling you how your word is being used in your text you got to keep going. So first, you look up the dictionary, you find the range of meaning. Second, you can you can throw in some cross references in scripture to see how else that word is used. It's best when you're looking up the same author in the same book or other books by the same author. But you're just you're getting more of a feel for how that word is used. And that can be fruitful. But there's still going to be ranges of meaning. And so the, the determining factor in how your word, or what your word means in your passage, the determining factor is always what? Good job. Context. And that, that goes for all language. That's just how language works. The context will make clear exactly how the author is using the given word right there in that passage. In the dictionary definition, it's going to give you a list, a range of meaning. Which one of those? is being used in your passage, well, the context is going to make clear. And through studying, Bible study, all we're talking about, and studying the context, you're going to try and arrive at the correct meaning of that word. And that's, that's a word study. You know, the context is king. Words are known by the company they keep. And so, an example that we've been kind of using, it's fresh in our mind from Sunday mornings, the word justified in James 2, that that James uses when he says justified by works. You look at the Bible dictionary or the lexicon, and you see it has a range of meaning. It comes from the root word dikaio in Greek. Uh, it, it's, it's related to the word for righteousness or justice in Greek. And uh, when it's used uh, as a noun by James and Paul, it often can mean you know, declaration of righteousness, being declared righteousness. But it has another meaning of a demonstration of righteousness, and so you want to find out what that word means in James. Maybe look up how Paul use it, uh, uses it. And he's almost always using it as a declaration of righteousness. And, so, and he makes it so clear. But at the same time, the context is just so determinative in James. That's not how he's using it. The context makes it rather clear. He's speaking of a demonstration of just uh, righteousness. That being said, there's another verse that's kind of interesting. It's Romans 2.13. Where Paul himself uses that word, he says it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law will be justified. and so Paul uses this word justified, kind of like James. and so if you wanted to find out like how is Paul using that word justified in Romans two thirteen and you do that word study, so you've got the range of meaning, and you look up how Paul uses the word justified, and almost always. Paul uses justified to mean being declared righteous apart from works, just by faith, declared righteous. And so you're thinking like Romans 3.13, sounds like a good chance that's what it's gonna mean there. But you study that text and the context, the point he's making there, which is a unique point, you realize, no, this is an exception. Paul here in Romans 2.13 is speaking of a demonstration of righteousness. The doers of the law will be justified or demonstrated righteous. And again, it's just another example, a simple example though of how, you know, you want to study a passage, words matter, and you're going to do a word study. It's going to give you a range, but the context itself is going to, you know, drill down what that word means. And isn't that, isn't that how we build up what a verse means or what a sentence means by, by what all the words mean? So we start at the level of words and And in your study process, you're going to have identified some key words for study. Well, here's where you're going to do that and study those words and and figure it out. From words, you can move up to sentences and and paragraphs in your level of understanding. Sentences and paragraphs. And after you learn the meaning of certain words, you want to find out how these words function together in a sentence or paragraph and uh, so we're not going to give you the refresher now of all the various parts of speech in the English language. You can, you know, go get the full message for that. But I'll just say this. You're doing study. You've identified the main paragraph of thought. Just try and identify the main thought in the paragraph. That, that's how paragraphs are formed. So what's the main thought here? And in the simplest form, in any paragraph of scripture, the main thought will be identified by the main subject and predicate, which that just means the main noun and the main verb. Just look for the main noun, you know, the person, place, or thing, and the main verb, the main action word, right? And that's going to typically give you the main thought, and that's good. Like, what's the main thought here? Try and find the main noun and verb of the paragraph. Hey, sometimes, though, there's several, and your task becomes finding out how they relate to one another, Sometimes it gets more complex. There's all these modifying phrases and clauses. Uh, But it can seem like a tangled web. But hey, just simplify things. Start with the main thought, the main subject and predicate. And then work down how everything else relates back to it. It can be challenging. It comes with practice. In a simple example here, we've been studying Ephesians on Wednesday nights. Use it as an example last time. And we studied Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which is this huge run-on sentence, as Oliver pointed out. But what's the main thought? Blessed be God, right? Just, he starts off with it, and it's it, from the beginning, blessed be God. It's a, it's a word of praise. And then the rest of it, just a seemingly endless list of modifying phrases of why we should blessed, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why. But that's just the main thought. So that kind of helps you. And then from there, you can just attach things, how they relate back to why we, why we should bless God so forth So anyway, the best you can identify the main thought, it's going to help you. There's a lot more there, but for the sake of time and simplicity, we're just going to leave it at that. Lastly here, in, in bridging the, the grammatical gap is understanding books, so from words to sentences and, and, and paragraphs, now to books, books of the Bible. And here we're talking about genre, understanding the genre uh, of the book of the Bible book you're studying. Different genres have different characteristics. So identifying the genre of your book, or even just the genre of your passage, because some books have many genres, that's going to be very helpful in letting you know what to expect. What is genre? Genre is a separate category of literature that has its own distinct form, style, or subject matter. It's kind of the formal definition. You all know what genre is, even if you don't know the formal definition. I know it's, it's kind of outdated, and I myself you know, do not read the newspaper, but I think most of you still know what a newspaper is. So take a newspaper, for example. Newspapers can s- contain many different sections. Each section is a genre. You have the front page, The sports page, the cooking page, the business page, the editorial page, the comics page. Those are all like different genres. And they each have their own distinct style. Their distinct writing, distinct content, and so forth. And so uh, distinct vocabulary. And the more you know those, the more you know what to expect when you're reading a given genre. So let's say you're reading, for example, a novel. And you see the phrase DJI 12,767.57 12,767.57 plus 2.56. You'd be very confused. Like, what does that mean? You're reading a novel. That that makes no sense. It doesn't belong. But if you were reading the business page and you saw that phrase, you would know the genre, you know the context, and you immediately know that you're reading a business ticker. That's a, the Dow Jones Industrial. You're, that's That's what that phrase means. And it, it makes perfect sense. And so, look, Knowing the genre, the context, it's just going to help you know what to expect. The same goes for the context or the comics page in the newspaper. You're reading the comics, you know you're going to expect irony. You're going to expect satire. You're not going to get the literal meaning of things. It's, it's all going to be tongue-in-cheek. That's what you get in the comics page. But you're reading the cooking page, you're expecting very literal instructions. All right, That's the whole point. So you see what I'm saying here. The Bible itself has many genres. And it's just good to recognize them, to take them into account when you're seeking a given passage's meaning. Just real quick, some of the more prominent genres in Scripture. Prose. That's just the the normal daily speech of mankind. Most of the conversations in the Bible are prose. Or the epistles are prose. Poetry. A third of the Old Testament is poetry. Poetry. And you get a lot of figurative language in poetry. English poetry is known by rhyming. Jewish poetry does not rhyme. It's known by parallelism, parallel thoughts. That's a big deal. You have historical narrative. And this is just, you know, the, well, history. You see this in the four gospels, in the book of Acts, and in many of the Old Testament history books. You expect literal, straightforward fact in historical narrative. Wisdom literature. Much of this is reflective and philosophical in nature. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you know you're reading wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is not black and white. It deals with a lot of the grays. And so you expect that in Proverbs. This is not necessarily black and white. Wisdom is is different. Parables, it's a type of comparative literature that utilizes story and then prophetic. And uh, it's about 22% of the Bible It's largely sermonic in nature, and uh, it can be literal, can be uh, figurative. Perhaps many would say the most difficult to figure out, but nonetheless, it has its own distinct style. The more you know that, the better you're going to handle studying prophecy. So look, in Bible study, the more you can become familiar with these different genres, just what they're like, what to expect, what characterizes them, the better you're going to Study the Bible. You've got a passage. You identify the genre. Oh, this is prose. It tells you, do I expect this to be super literal? Do I expect figurative language here? It's going to help. Now, again, you could go a lot further when it comes to bridging the grammar gap. Some of you might excel here. Some of you might struggle here. Let me encourage you, though, that you know most people, they're able to just read the Bible in English and naturally kind of figure some things out without knowing a lot of grammar. Like, I bet most of you could naturally identify the main subject and predicate in a, in a sentence, even if you don't know what that means. You could tell me, like, who's the main actor here, the main person, Who's the? what's the main verb. You could probably tell me without knowing all the special words. So I'll just say for for those who are going to get more serious about in-depth Bible study, This is going to be a frontier worth exploring for you as much as you may not like it. uh, Getting to know English grammar, that's that's going to be a frontier you want to go after. For the rest, you know, do your best and uh, resources help. i just put it that way, resources help. Now, you might be feeling like a lot of this that we're studying here, it's it's a lot. We're talking about kind of an in-depth Bible study process. You might feel a lot of this is out of your league. It's beyond your ability. You don't have the time or the resources or or the learning to to do all this. And look, we're all limited in various ways, either by time or gifting or resources or ability. But again, here's good news that thankfully we live in a day and age where there's just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Bible books, Bible commentaries, helps. And there are others, many scholars who've given their entire lives over to the study of Scripture and we can learn a lot and benefit from the fruit of their labor. Because even myself, I will never know Greek as, as good as Greek translators and, and Greek professors. And so I can benefit so much from their study. They're going to help me. And so and so it goes in so many areas. They can help take us places and study we could never get to alone. So even if you feel like this is all kind of beyond me, I, I don't know if I can get that far. Let me encourage you, get as far as you can. Study the Bible on your own. God will bless it. Just do as much as you can. And Then comes time to just go get some help. And so this is going to bring us to step number eight, which is to consult. Consult. This is where we're just getting help, filling in all the remaining holes, and answering our questions. What are we consulting? Mostly this is going to involve Commentaries. Those are special works devoted to a single book of the Bible, usually in the format of verse-by-verse notes. So you're studying a verse. If you can find a commentary on that and a good commentary, you crack it open to that verse, and you'll read the the fruit of some scholars study on that passage. You could also look up, you know, study Bible notes, journal articles, just various books. There's just a world of resources you can tap into to just help at this point. Now again, I'd say you don't want to make this your first step because then you're short-circuiting the the benefit of personal Bible study. But there's no shame in getting to the step because commentaries can help fill in the gaps. And just again, men have spent so much time studying. Why wouldn't you want to learn what others have learned? They're going to make some observations you did not see. These are guys who just spent way more time in the text than you and me. They're going to see more. They're going to pull in relevant observations from all throughout the Bible which is a greater knowledge of the word they're going to give you cross references you didn't even think of and you're going to find many of your answers question, or many of your questions answered now when you consult some of your commentaries they're a great place to check your list of questions so this is kind of process I'm giving you that the training wheels version you're studying you're reading remember you're making a list of observations and a list of questions and you Part of your goal is like answer all your questions. That's a, that'd be a good study if you could answer every single one of your questions. That's pretty good. And studying the history, you're answering some questions. Say a little bit of grammar, you're answering some questions. Doing some word studies, you're answering some questions. But you're still gonna have a, perhaps a good chunk of questions left over. And like, I still don't know how to answer all these. Where you're gonna read some commentaries, look up some resources and find the rest likely being answered. In fact, commentaries, you'll find they will ask questions you didn't even think of. They will ask and answer questions that you weren't even aware of. They're going to add historical, grammatical, and contextual details. They're going to give you a solid outline of the text. And all of this is going to help you arrive at a better understanding of the passage. So at this point, you know, read some commentaries, take some more notes. Maybe at this point you've got a a, a page for each verse you're studying and you're, you're taking notes based on what you're learning from the commentaries. You're, you're building up your notes. You're answering questions. Don't just, you know, copy commentaries. You still have to be critical because commentaries are written by men and therefore fallible. It is good to find some favorite commentators, trusted men with proven Bible study methods and sound doctrine. But even good writers can be wrong at times, so you, you have to be Discerning, never give any single man too much credit, never take a commentator's word for it. You should be able to trace their study so that you would agree with their conclusion. That, that's a good commentary. And as a practical note here, if you're going to get to this point, you're going to do this much study and you're actually going to crack out some commentaries, if you make it this far, then it's worth telling you there's three categories of commentaries and you kind of want to know which one you need. Three basic types of commentaries. The first is exegetical. Exegetical, that the word exegesis to draw out. Now those are the super technical commentaries. I mean they're talking about Greek and Hebrew in the Greek and Hebrew. They're interacting with textual criticism. They're they're going deep. And chances are you guys won't want to go, it's going to be overkill, and you'll need a commentary just to understand that commentary. So you probably don't need to go to exegetical commentaries unless you're you're excelling in, uh, in your own study. The second there are expositional commentaries, expositional. These delve deep into the text. They're not quite as technical. They're going to interact with the Greek and the Hebrew, but in an understandable way for the lay person. And they're they're geared toward explaining the passage as a whole. but they're not going to get so bogged down by the minute details. So this is going to be your bread and butter, the expositional commentaries, expositional. And the third are the devotional commentaries, devotional. These don't trouble themselves with the technical matters at all. They're just going to straight up give you all their conclusions. They're not going to repeat their study. And even at that, their goal is to really get to the application of the text in a modern and practical way. They're devotional. And they can be hit or miss, but they also can be helpful with just spurring you on to the application of the text. Because after all, that, that's where we are trying to get eventually. How do I apply this to my life? How does all this Bible study change my life? And devotional commentaries can really help with that. And that, that's a good thing. So it's, if you get serious as a Bible student, it's best to invest in a handful of good commentaries from each of these categories. that have their own unique strengths and weaknesses. You can always borrow some from Oliver and myself. Someone just did that. Or uh, go online. You can find a bunch online as well. Just be discerning. And always remember, Scripture is infallible. Commentaries are not. So, Just be discerning. All right, we're going to finish now with our final step, at least for our evening. And that's step nine, which is to interpret. This is that you've come now to the end of this Bible study process as we're defining it. And so the the step nine is to interpret. Every piece of literature must be interpreted, including the Bible, just by the definition of language. Words can have many meanings, so you, you have to interpret. On one side, words can be taken in their plain, normal meaning. Others might advocate that words should be taken in a special, spiritual, allegorical meaning. And when studying the Bible, it is a spiritual book. Without getting too far into this topic, we adhere to a, a literal interpretation. Where we don't believe there's a, a secret hidden meaning under the text. But we're after just the, the plain meaning. What did the author mean? If he meant something extra spiritual, well, the context will tell us that. But we're just after the plain, literal meaning of the passage. And that's, again, going to be determined by the context. But anyway, through study... You're prepared now to to drill down and and interpret. All the steps of Bible study have led you up to this point. And now's the time to interpret by stating the meaning of the text. Isn't that what we've been after? The the original authorial intent. The meaning of the text as defined by the author. And you've done a lot of study about what the text says. Now, through that study, you're going to be able to determine or really recognize what the text uh, means. And that's interpretation. To simplify this step for beginners, it's useful to follow a little formula for interpreting any given passage. A little formula. With your passage, write down a single past tense sentence. A single past tense sentence. That tells what the original author wanted his original audience to know. I see some note takers, so I'll repeat that. You you just try and write down a single past tense sentence. Just one sentence, past tense. That tells what the original author wanted his original audience to know. And so the three elements there. Single sentence, original author, original audience. We want this to be a single sentence because... The meaning should be simple and plain and straightforward. So try and limit yourself to one sentence. You know, what does this passage mean? One sentence. Past tense. Because we're still concerned of what it originally meant. We want this to reflect the original author. We want to know his intent in the writing, which is going to be the same as God's intent. And also this is going to concern the original audience. Because we're still at this point taking into consideration the specific target of the text. And so the goal is to come up with a one-sentence description of the text's intent. What the original author, what the original guy meant to his original audience. What did Paul mean in Ephesians 1, 3-14 to the church of Ephesus? What was his intent here? He's writing, you know, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church of Ephesus to tell them, to to exhort them to bless God, their father, for all the spiritual blessings he's given them. There you go. A single past sentence, or past tense sentence, original author, original audience. It's, again, this is training wheels, but this is still helpful for beginners. It's giving you some uh, framework for nailing down what the passage means. You're not concerned about the present day audience and the application yet. You're going to get there, but the the meaning of the text never changes. Applications will be different and varied, but you just want the original meaning. And this should be now the fruit of all your study to really uh, nail down the original meaning of the passage. You want to focus on the main point, the main argument of the passage. Like I said, this is often attached to the main verb, And sometimes your paragraph will have a self-contained purpose. Other times you'll need to incorporate the context to to arrive at the passage's purpose. But again, you're bringing in all that you've studied at this point to try and get this sentence that's going to define the meaning for your passage. This can be one of the most challenging steps, but it's the most important. This is where you're now interpreting and uh, if you've done your due diligence, you've done good Bible study, it should actually come pretty naturally. Now, there are a few steps left, like application and implementation. You're actually implementing the meaning to your own life, but we're going to save that for a future lesson, and we'll we'll finish here with how to study the Bible. There are a few steps left. I'm actually going to fold those into a future lesson on how to teach the Bible, where you now take all that you've studied as a teacher now, you take what you've studied, and you're trying to now deliver what the text meant to your audience and also apply it and implement it in their lives. So we're going to fold that into the next lesson, which is going to be on how to teach the Bible. Again, you might think, that's not for me. I'm not going to teach the Bible. But, well, you're sitting in a biblical leadership series. And so this is part of the how-tos of leadership, studying the Bible, though. Let that be your where you start. Just just start there. Fill yourself and feed yourself with Bible study as you grow. And as the Lord calls you, you can get to teaching the Bible. So you're going to get a little dose of that next time. But just, just uh, you know, I want to encourage you to, to study. Again, you might feel like, man, this, this seems like overkill. This is way more than I even like want to do with studying the Bible. Like, Can I just read casually? And you can. You can read casually. You can read devotionally. But challenge yourself. Stretch yourself to study. God rewards that. He blesses that. His word never returns void. And you will find a greater blessing and impact in your own life the deeper you go. The more you pour in, the more you get out, as the old adage goes. And it really is true with Bible study. That's perhaps the hidden and maybe greatest Byproduct of being a teacher or preacher is all the study that goes into it, most of which you never even hear about, I get. And that's a benefit to my soul, and that's it's good. And so it goes with you in Bible study. So take this for what it's worth. This is exposure. This is instruction. Challenge yourself. Stretch yourself to just study the Bible. Even if you're applying a few of these steps, it's going to be profitable. So get after it. Especially those in leadership, as we often say, though, uh, learn to really study the Bible, that you get it down, you can master it, and enjoy, or at least just keep growing. And we want leaders who know how to study the word, handle the word, and later even teach the word. So let that be you. Well, let's finish in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed for tonight. Lord, we always, or rather often end these by just thanking you for your word. And that's, that's appropriate. We thank you for Scripture. You've you've not left yourself without a witness or instruction. You've given us revelation. Some comes in creation itself, but you've given us above all a special revelation that the sixty six books of the Bible, the inspired Word, it's given to us to know you, to know Christ, to know ourselves and our sin, to know salvation, and then everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. We're richly blessed. We have such a privilege of having the Bible in our hands, even in English, such a privilege, Lord. But it, the blessing still comes to those who who seek it, who search for it like silver and gold, who mine for it, like it says in, in Proverbs. And may that be us. May we not be content with just you know hearing a sermon now and then, maybe reading casually, but inspire us to want to know your word more, to, to want to feed, and to even study as much as we can. You've given us different abilities and giftings, and that's that's fine. So as, as much as we're able, help us and inspire us to learn, to study, to know your word. That's just what we want, to know your word, what it means, and and then how we ought to live in light of it. So bless this, bless our process, bless, bless this uh, church as we seek to be those who Take your word seriously and and want to study it and get it right. may that go for all of the the leaders and, and future leaders here as well in Christ's name we pray amen.